Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, The Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hey, lit lovers. Hey, Maisha. Today, we're talking with the talented and brilliant Jason Reynolds. Jason is perhaps the most prolific writer we've spoken to so far on It's Lit, having published 14 books to date, and his YA novels frequently make the New York Times bestseller list. On top of that, he has won multiple awards for his work, including the Kirkus Award, and a NAACP Image Award. He has twice been a National Book Award finalist as well. Jason's previous books include Ghost, Long Way Down, Look Both Ways, and As Brave As You. And his most recent endeavor was an adaptation of Ibram X. Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning called Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. And I also think it's worth noting that Jason is the 2020-2021 National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. Absolutely. And, you know, Jason was also a 2019 honoree of The Route 100. Yes. Which we, you know, we were ahead of the curve, man. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you're right. And I'm both overwhelmed with what he has accomplished and continues to accomplish and so blown away by our talk with Jason. You know, he's so dedicated to Black children, Black knowledge, I think this next generation of readers and thinkers, and I I just love the path that he's taken. I think it's not a conventional one, but it's so important, don't you? Oh, I definitely agree. And the fact that he's creating literature that speaks directly to Black children, especially Black boys, is incredible. And so it was so amazing to get into that with him. Yes. So let's get to it. Let's do it. Jason, welcome to It's Lit. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate y'all. Oh, it's no trouble. We're really excited to host you today because what a year has it been since you were one of the Route 100 in 2019. For sure. What a year it's been for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. A lot has happened since 2019, but before we dig into all that, we have a little ritual here at It's Lit where we ask every one of our visitors to name at least one book that they consider to be life-changing, life-affirming, life-altering, it blew your mind. What was that book or books for you? Jasmine Ward, Salvage the Bones. Oh. It's probably the best book quick. I've ever read. <laughs> yeah. That's my, I think that's, I think that might be definitely the best book written in the 21st century. And maybe top 100 books ever, like, ever written for me. Yeah, I think it's just something. I think Jasmine Wood is is the best of our generation and is one of those, you know, 
it's, she's a, she's a rare one that, that kind of rises up and you're like, Oh, like this is different. She's different. And, uh, yeah, that, that is the bar. Jasmine Ward, Savage the Bones. Okay. Excellent choice. So hands down, you know, Jason, like you're pretty much the most prolific writer we've hosted since starting It's Lit. Yeah. Uh, since publishing your first novel in 2014 you've published if our count is correct about a dozen more books for the young adult audience a a few more a few more than that right i couldn't even keep count yeah Yeah, it's like 14 or so okay 14 all right all right okay okay and among those 14 books we have several number one bestsellers and the acclaimed track series and one of my personal favorite miles morales spider-man big fan (laughs) word up In that same time, you've been a finalist for multiple National Book Awards, earned the Newbery Honor, an NAACP Award, and more. I've probably left yeah. plenty out. Thank you for that, by the way. Thank you for leaving plenty out. <laughs> I appreciate that. I know. Mean, we'll just be here all day just talking about all the accolades, right? Exactly. And, it just, and it just gets, you know what it is? It just gets a little, it's, a, it's embarrassing for me. We so are embarrassment of riches. <laughs> That's the worst kind of embarrassment. <laughs> oh, I can think of some, some embarrassments that are worse than an embarrassment of riches. But we have your latest bestseller, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, which is your remix of Ibram X. Kendi's 2016 National Book Award-winning bestseller, Stamped from the Beginning. How did this project come about? So he won. When he won the National Book Award, I was there. I was nominated for Ghost that year. I, that was the year, uh, you know, I, I lost to John Lewis. Uh, you know, God bless the day. Rest in peace, John Lewis. So you can't really be mad about losing to John Lewis, you know. <laughs> but I lost to John Lewis. He won for nonfiction, Ibram. And uh, shortly after that, he moved to D.C., which is where I live. And we went out for like dinner or something like that. And he was like, yo, you know, everybody's telling me that they wish they had this book when they were young. What do you think about adapting this into a young reader's version of, of, of my book? And I was like, absolutely not. I thought it was a terrible idea. I thought not not a bad idea or that it shouldn't happen, but that I shouldn't. I just thought it was a bad idea to ask me to do it. <laughs> um, and so I said, no, and he was a little shocked because at that point, no one was telling him no, uh, <laughs> and, and no one's telling him no now, <laughs> no one's telling him no. And he asked again a couple months later and I said, no, again. And he asked a few months after that. And I said, no, again. And I continued to sort of turn him down just because I felt like, I mean, what he made was, uh, you know, we're talking about a new tuning fork in the conversation of race in America, um, a recalibration of language when it comes to the way we talk about it, it felt dangerous to tamper with that. It felt like, because there's no way you're going to be able to get it right. There's no way you're going to be able to really do what he did. And I felt like, well, why would you, sometimes, you know, as, as, our, as all of our elders say, you know, sometimes it's best to leave well enough alone. And what he made was well enough. And, uh, but he convinced me that perhaps we could do something bigger than the both of us, that perhaps it could have even more of an impact if we could figure out how to make it a bit more accessible. Cause his book, as brilliant as it is, it's a lot of book. It's, it's a lot. And the truth is that not all of us have the capacity to read 600 pages. Not all of us have the intellectual capacity to digest and comprehend such dense scholarship. And so it was then that I kind of bent a little bit and it was like, all right, bro, I'll give it a swing. Um, I regretted it immediately after. 
Um, immediately <laughs> after saying yes, I regret, I regret, I regretted it. Uh, it. Like I'm talking about, like the moment after, I was like, I know, I've, I know that I've stepped in it. I know that this is a way above my intellectual capacity. I know I wasn't a very good student, right? So to ask me to sort of synthesize information is like, I don't know if this is a good idea. Um, but you know, we got there eventually. Good. And there you did get, like, that was incredible. You know, this book was released in early March, just as COVID-19 was making headlines in America. And only a few months before the killings of George Floyd and way too many other Black victims that would inspire uprisings across America, Stamps almost immediately became one of the books on pretty much every anti-racist recommended reading list. How did you feel about mm. being intertwined with this moment in history? It's complicated for me. It's complicated for me. And I know not everybody feels this way, and that's okay. But for me, it's a complicated thing. I um I experienced this with a book that I wrote back in 15 or 16, uh, All American Boys. And it was the same kind of thing. It was like, well, Black boys are getting killed. Black girls are getting killed by cops. And I had written the book that talked about white, the first children's book that discussed white privilege and mm. and all that kind of stuff. And it was the same kind of moment where things kind of hit a fever pitch and your book happens to be that thing that people are using as an anchoring point. Um, it's complicated because I ain't finna be no race profiteer. I'm not interested in getting rich on no, on no blood money. I'm a black person for real. I love us. And I don't want to ever feel nasty or icky about profiting from a, from so much pain uh, because it's very real for us. It's very real for, for, for many of us. And, and, and so I'm, I'm proud of what I made with Stamped. And I'm happy that it is in the zeitgeist the way that it is. But I also know that for many people, it's just fodder. It's no different than what Ta-Nehisi's book was, where everybody felt like it was the, where if you didn't have it or if you didn't, you see white folks on the A train in New York and it was like, yo, if you ain't reading this, then that means that we can make a judgment call about you, right? Even if you don't care about anything happening in this book, you can't connect to it. You really could care less, but this becomes, this becomes the new Louboutin. And I ain't really interested in, in, in serving as nobody's Louboutin, to be honest with you. So, so, so it's twofold, right? I'm proud of these kids that get it in their schools and in their curriculums and are growing up with this kind of language and this kind of information. I'm proud of, of my mama and all the elders out there who are getting a better understanding of their own lives from a different, like seeing it from outside of themselves and understanding what happened to them and why it happened to them in the way that it did. I'm proud of the well-intentioned and well-meaning, hardworking white folks who are willing to, to, to actually sacrifice and risk. Because if you ain't willing to sacrifice nothing, I don't care if you read the book. Don't really make a difference to me, to be honest with you. Like the, the book has to push you to sacrifice, to risk, to, 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 to put your own, your own body on the line, to question your reality and your comforts. If it doesn't do that, then, uh, you know, I ain't really tripping on no book sales or no lists. You know, I love, I don't think I could love that answer more because I, when I was reading it, I, I also loved how it pushed all of us to examine our alignments, our thought processes, our privileges. Like, you know, it definitely pushed me. And I, I, I really dig that that's the, the approach you take to it. And I, I, I agree with you that it's complicated. I think we've actually had the privilege of interviewing a few of you who ended up on those recommended reading lists since we've launched It's Lit. And all of you have, had some version of it, this being a very bittersweet kind of success, yeah. you know, but I think you just gave the most comprehensive answer as to why that is. And, you know, as Danielle noted, 
you're well known and respected for your work in the young adult genre. And, you know, your narratives always center black and brown characters. And this year you were also named the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, which will last through 2021. Why why does this demographic in particular appeal to you? The kids? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, who else is there to write for? Let me tell you, this is so, and everybody who knows me knows this is the the biggest chip on my shoulder. Because I hear that, right? People are always like, yo, you know, Jay, one day, like, I got I got a deal for an adult novel that I'm working on, right? A, a, a novel okay. in the adult world that I'm working on. And, and, and everyone's like, yo, Jay, you finally going to write like a real book. And it's like, <laughs> yo, the crazy thing about it, it's so interesting. And the crazy thing about it is, one, all of your favorite books you read when you were in the seventh and eighth grade, and you call them classics. And today's time, they would be categorized as as young adult, right? To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mice and Men, Lord, Lord of the Flies, right? Like all the Catcher in the Rye, right? All these books that everybody looks at as part of the American canon. These are books that existed before the before the categories existed. But if the categories exist, I mean, Harper Lee was teased for writing uh, To Kill a Mockingbird because they said she'd written a children's book. And so it's interesting. Number two, number two, most of my buddies who work in the adult sector have never tried to write for young people. Uh, and if you try to write for young people, you realize how difficult it is. You have to write, right. you have to paint the Mona Lisa with a full palette and it has to look like the Mona Lisa. And I have to too, I have to also paint the Mona Lisa with half the palette and it still has to look like the Mona Lisa. I would argue that those of us over here who know how to do it well have an extraordinary amount of skill set, an extraordinary amount of talent that most people just can't understand unless you try it. And three, those the folks who who look down upon children's literature don't know that they're not looking down upon children's literature. They're looking down upon children. Mm. Right. It's the idea that children's literature can't be sophisticated because to you, children can't be sophisticated. When the truth is, is that children's literature is extraordinarily sophisticated. I can I can point out exis, books about existentialism that were written for 14 year olds, a book called Nothing by Jan Teller. I could point out like Walter D. Myers's work. Which, I mean, some of those books ended up, I mean, I, I, the, the Young Landlord spawned some of our favorite TV shows back in the day, like 227, right? Like, we could go on and on and on about the contributions that Black people have made, specifically Black folks have made when it comes to children's literature, and how we are the ones who create the readers for all of my buddies who write for the adults. If, we, if I don't do my job, you don't have a career. I, I, I think that's a really good through line. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> You know, and I think of people like, you know, Jacqueline Woodson and, you know, I mean, Jacqueline Woodson. right. Like there's some who used to be my neighbor. I'm, I don't know why I'm proud of that. I just am. <laughs> you should be. She's one, one of my best friends. She's one of my best friends. <laughs> just a fantastic writer. But again, someone like you who has specialized in a specific demographic and, you know, Danielle and I are both, you know, have been voracious readers since we were very young. So I, I don't know that I'd ever actually thought of it that way. But, you know, one of the things I, I, that tickled me when I looked at this. Now, we, we like to tell everybody to, you know, obviously patronize uh, Black bookstores, but I could not help sure. but notice that on Amazon, Stamped is recommended for ages 12 to 99. And I, I don't know why the centenarians <laughs> were left out, but I thought that was actually really on point because, you know, like you noted, you know, you did something here. And I can understand. I love that you said that it was intimidating because... You did something really remarkable here, which is kind of distill this massive history into this non-history book, as you call it, right? Which is less than half the size of the original. And you made it accessible to an audience that might not gravitate to a history book or a 
page or 600 page tome or or people, you know, like us who are writing and reading all day who are like, I don't have time to read the 600 pages, you know, <laughs> um, like sure. what, getting a little bit deeper into that. Like, what was that process like? Absolute misery. <laughs> um, it was terrible. But it, it, sounds, it really it's was. so fun. I mean, it is actually really fun to read. So it's funny to but hear that, say Thank that. you. But that came later. That came later. I okay. mean, I, honestly, the first the first two or three passes, it was brutal because I I was working with my own insecurity. You know, like you. I mean, I, you you all know you, you sit at the the desk and at your computer and you bring all yourselves with you. You know, it's it's Jason the writer and then Jason the scared little boy and Jason the insecure thirty something and Jason that right. All the Jasons are there and I got to figure out how to suss through all the muck to find the one that's confident enough to take a swing on something, right? To, to trust my gut. That gets tough, you know, and, and, and I did, I, I was face to face with a lot of my insecurities when working on this book. Um, am I smart enough? Do I even understand what he, do I understand what he's saying in this book? Do I, you know, like, I really kind of dealing with all those things. And so the first two or three versions of the book were my attempt to write a young version of his book, right? That's what I was trying to do. Take his work and edit it and clean it up to make something that seemed a little more accessible to younger people. And it wasn't working because it still felt too academic. It was still very long, like 380 pages, 400 pages. Uh, and so I decided to quit. I was going to, I went up to New York to talk to our editor at Little Brown to tell her that I was going to give the money back and I was going back out of the, out of the deal. It's been like two years at this point. And I was like, ah, it ain't, I can't, I can't seem to, it ain't clicking. And she said, man, look, you keep trying to make a, a different version of his book. And we keep telling you that we hired you. We asked you to do it to make, to take his research and write your book. Right. Take his research and write your book. Do it. Write a Jason Reynolds book. You know what you do. You know what you offer, what you bring to the conversation. So we want you to do that thing. And I said, well, if you want me to do that thing, I'm going to have to ruin what he's done. And they're like, we understand. I'm like, but you don't understand. Like, I'm like, I'm a pretty irreverent guy and I pretty much poke fun at everything I don't like. I, I pick I pick at everything. You know, my friends, everything. If I, if, I, if there's something to be picked at, I'm picking it. I'm, I'm a pick with you, right? And so, and so she said, that's okay. And so I got back on the train, headed back to DC. And, uh, and I, all I thought to myself was, I hate boring history books. I hate this kind of book. I hate it, right? I, I, I could appreciate his. And I heard him read from it at, at the National Book with, oh, this is dope. I, I'm with it, right? And I'm, and I'm old enough and mature enough to like, to sit and deal with what he had written. But I typically, I hate, I hate prescriptive, hyper-technical, academic pieces of, I hate it because I find them to be outrageously exclusive. I think they exclude so many people. And so I, I got on the train and I said to myself, this can't be no history. Like this is, this is not a history book, not like the ones you're used to. That's literally the first thing that came to me. And I wrote that down in my notepad and I knew at that point, like I was going to be all right. Like, cause that was it. It's like, all right, I'm going to settle into the fact that the first thing I'm going to do is turn the table over and say, this ain't going to be that, you know? And then it was all me. After that, it was just me being me, right? Talking my trash, cracking my jokes. You, you got to bring levity. Look, I'm black, black folks, you know, we know better. We, for us, you know, ain't nobody's life all pain. You know what I mean? Life mm -hmm. is tough and mm -hmm. laughter is always present. And so like bringing levity into really complicated conversations about race, uh, creating space for breathing and pausing because I deal with young people all the time and I know how easy it is for them to recoil. Um, thinking about all the metaphors that one could use to create 
uh, analogy so that they can grasp and bite down on things a little easier. All of this is sort of now running through my head. My, my background and training is in poetry. And so using what, I, what I've learned as a, as a young, when I was a young poet about what to do on the page with line and form and size and all of these kinds of things, bringing all of that to the text. Um, and after that, it took me like a month and then I was done, game over. identified uh, book-hating boys as a target audience for your work. (laughs) You know, and while you were an early lover of words, is this correct? You famously didn't read your first novel cover to cover until you were like a teenager. A late teen, almost 18. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel Black boys in particular benefit from immersing themselves in books? And do you have any advice for encouraging young readers so they see it as a joy rather than a chore. You know, I think um, black boys, we, what we find in sports, uh, so many of us, a lot of times it, it's never really about the sport. It's about the feeling of usefulness. Uh, it's about the feeling of visibility, the feeling of, of team and family and camaraderie. How does one externalize aggression and fear? All of these sorts of things. And I think books have the same, they have the same space, right? They, they hold the same space. I think I always tell young men, look, I'm writing your secrets into these books. That's the reason why if you've ever, I mean, anyone who's read any of my novels, most of them, almost always, 99% of the time, there will be a moment where you will see a boy crying. Because I need boys to know that it's all right. And I need them to know, because we, we underestimate the layers of walls that so many young boys have had to uh, pack on, right? Shellac onto their consciousness to maneuver around the world. If you a city kid, you really, you, I mean, you really got it on there because you got to survive. You got to get from here to school. You got to get on the city bus. You got to deal with whatever's happening in the community. You got, I mean, there's just so much happening with young men and with young women, by the way. Because I always, that's a whole other, look, that's a whole other thing that I'm equally as, as, um, it's equally as important to me to make sure. It's, it's the reason why you, you see young women in my books who are also, the girls that I grew up with who are, they were tough and, but they weren't without feeling, right? I think that is this weird thing that we do where it's like, we don't want to show girls as weak. So we, so then we go to the other end of the spectrum and we, and we show them as soldiers. And it's like, you know, we all are human. We exist in this weird liminal space where both of those things can be true, right? And I think young men, I want to show them as human beings. That's all. I, I want them to be able to share their secret between the pages of a book. If you're scared to tell your friends that you're scared, but you open up a book and read about a little boy who's scared, you could put your fear there. You could know that somebody sees you, right? I got books about young men who are afraid of sexual moments. And, and, and I remember when I first wrote, when I was the greatest, I'll go to the schools and the kids be like, yo, can you talk about that scene in the book where he with the girl, lay in that room, and yada, yada, yada. Like, why you write that? That really happened to you? And I always tell them I wrote it because I don't want you to, to, be ashamed of your fear. And I want you to stop lying to your friends about what you're scared to do. And you don't have, you can, it's okay for you to be afraid. It's okay for you to wait 
to hold on for a second. It's okay for us to have like real human moments. But what happens is the pressure of, 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 a, of a nasty brand of masculinity pushes young men into really precarious situations. And over time, they just adapt. Right. And then it becomes harder to undo. You know what I mean? Like I think about who I was as a 13 year old. I was doing things that I had no business doing because I didn't want anyone to think of me as 13. Mm. I want I want to be a little boy. So you get on the train and you cuss as loudly as possible because that's what adults do. We thought, right? Or you go to somebody's house and you do things, or you like whatever it was. It was always about exerting some sense of of, of masculinity, some sense of manness. That didn't actually exist, but it's it's what we thought we had to do. I was in a school years ago, probably 10 years ago. I can't even remember where I was, somewhere down south. And there was a little boy who was hanging out in the library and he was sort of dawdling around. And suddenly he kind of drifted off down one of the rows. And the librarian said, just pay attention because they knew what he was doing because he's in there all the time. She said, just pay attention. And eventually we found him in the corner and he's sneaking, reading Maya Angelou, sneaking. Sneaking. Well, he didn't want anyone to know, but he needed it, right? And he's reading Maya Angelou. I'd be in the juvenile detention centers. You know what they read in juvie? You know what they love to read? Romance novels, right? Romance novels. Because they're 14, 15 years old, and if they weren't in prison, they'd be dating. They'd be having their first experiences. And so they read about the good girl saving the bad boy, and it makes them feel like they might just have a shot, right? And that's a beautiful thing. The issue is that they feel like they can't read those books when they're free. And that's my job. That's what I'm trying to do. If we got, if we got a broader vocabulary, if boys have a broader vocabulary, they have softer hands, right? If I got more language, I ain't got to do too much of this no more. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like, it's, it's simple, simple things. No, this yeah. is a mm-hmm. regular conversation I have with my really close male friends and my father. In fact, you know, my father's 78. And we talk just a lot about, you know, men not being allowed to have the full spectrum of their emotions, you know, and the fact that he at 78 is able to express this is like remarkable to me. But um, Maisha and I, you know, are both aunties, two boys. Um, My nephew is eight. How old is your nephew, Maisha? He just turned eight. Oh, we both got eight-year-olds, all right? Yes. So, you know, this is like an issue that's like really close to our hearts. And, you know, as I express, I'm a big fan of the superhero genre. So is my nephew. Um, I think he was, I think he was Spider-Man this Halloween. I mean, before he was like Iron Man, he's been Captain America. He's he's going through all the Marvels right now. I feel like we have the same nephew. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, every nephew is this nephew. <laughs> He's a literal stereotype. <laughs> but um, looking at the dimension you helped give Miles Morales, again, a character that I love, which I also see my nephew in because my nephew is also yeah. uh, Black and Latino. Mm. Um, I have to ask, are you also aiming to bring objective visibility to the value of Black boys and their rich inner lives? Oh, for sure. I mean, the truth is, is that I think I think black children in general are just um, astounding. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about living, breathing phenomenon, you know, born into a world that, uh, you know, a, a, a world with sharp teeth. And they I mean, looking at little, I mean, I, I can't I can't even begin to describe I, it's just black children are. It's weird because you like to, we always like to use words like magic and they're not magic. It's not that. I think that's a dangerous thing, right? I don't think they're magic because they are very much so kids. Yeah. They're human. Um, 
but I think that they, uh, because of culture, which is an interesting concept, right? And it's ephemeral. It's such an ephemeral concept oftentimes. There's something about Black children that is just so moving to me. I, I can't, I, it's almost indescribable. I can't really put my thing, it's like a, to see them laugh and to see them play and to see them dance and to see all the personality that so many of them have, whether it's a big personality or a small personality, right? There's nothing like seeing a shy Black kid. It's amazing. It's a right, and we don't we don't value that part, right? Like the shy black kid, or why the reason why I wrote the book Sunny, which is a part of the track series, uh, Ghost Patina Sunny, and Sunny's character is completely different because he's strange and a little bit of a weirdo and, and a misfit. Because black children are oftentimes pegged as either the coolest kid or the toughest kid in class, and it's like, no, I also deserve to be strange, and I deserve to look at anime and skateboard and do ballet and make up words and you know make up weird things to eat and whatever else I want to do. Right? I'm I'm a, I'm a human. And, and like even thinking about our version of what that looks like is amazing. And so I just, I always like to write about, about not just, I don't, it's not just about bad stuff. Like most, I mean, honestly, I have two or three books that are like tough, but most of my books are about black kids just being awesome and just being funny and dealing with neighborhood stuff. Right. And so even when you look at Miles, Miles is all about like, what do you, what do you tell a kid who's a suit? Like, and I'll just give you really, really quickly. When they asked me to do Miles, I was a little concerned. And I, I and honestly, I said, I said, no, again, I said, no. Um, uh, and That's so let, let, it be, let, let it be, known. <laughs> listen, let, let it be known. Let it be known for the record that Jason Reynolds don't jump at nothing that he ain't with. That's it. I'm not, I ain't chasing no bags. I, that's never been my way. It ain't never going to be my way. So they offered me, Marvel came and said, we want you to write Spider-Man. And I was like, no, nah, I'm good. Which everybody was like, what? How could you? And I was like, bro, I got other things to do. I'm not interested. And they were like, well, you could write Miles, man. And I was like, yeah, but I read some of the comics and all they did was paint his face brown. You know what I mean? Like he ain't, he ain't had no cultural texture, right? There's no nuance to his character. So why would I look like taking this on unless they let me do what I want? And that was the sort of thing. It was like, look, I'll do this, but y'all got to let me rock. I got to let me cook. You can't let, you can't hire me saying, you know who it is that I am and what I do. And then I take the job and you try to make me be somebody else, right? Like, Either I'm going to do it my way or I'm not going to do it. So they say, okay, cool. We, we let you, you know, we let you go ahead and do your thing. And for me, that meant a lot of things had to change immediately. For instance, and this is one of the beauty, the, the beauties of black community and black life is you got a kid who a superhero, but he got, he got a Puerto Rican mama and he got a black daddy, which means ain't no way his parents are going to be like, yeah, yeah, go out there and save the world. <laughs> right. That's just not a thing. Like, in our families, it's like, let me tell you something, son. You better save these grapes. <laughs> you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to save them dishes in the sink, save them chores. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have to, right? You, you know what I mean? Like when the last time you talked to your grandma, you had to call her up. You can't even save her. You got to save your block. You got to save your neighborhood. You got to save your people. Then we can think about you saving the world. That's a very sort of like indicative thing about our culture, right? And it was like, all right. So first of all, I got to work with that. Second of all, what you tell a kid who put on a mask and becomes invisible, and then takes off a mask and is still invisible? Right. What you tell a kid whose whose superpowers ain't superpowers when he's black and brown. Right. Like like Spidey sense ain't no thing we've ever had. That ain't no superpower for us. It's just what it means to grow up black in America. I know when the bad thing is coming three blocks away. My mama raised me to do that. 
It ain't take no spiders to teach me that, right? So all of this had to like, <laughs> I had to put all of this into the book, not to show like some terrible thing, but to show this is the beauty of blackness. We already got super, like I'm born with that. I know that already, you know what I mean? And then I could play around with the funny stuff and it became more about like, what does it really mean for a teenager to have a superpower? It means a lot of nonsense. That's what it means. It means doing ridiculous things. If I could fly and who who would y'all have been if you could fly in high school? Oh my God. Like think about I it. I definitely would have been in high exactly. school. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think it, all of those things highlight the beauty of who we are, the beauty of childhood, you know, and that's always what I'm trying to tap into in a, in a nuanced and interesting way. You know, shout out to the babies. Yeah, I love that you talk about nuance too, because you know, again, you are one of, I mean, you are the most prolific writer we have hosted yet to date, and and so there's a lot of there's a lot to mine here. Um, and you've you've written that you consider yourself, you know, a writer in the same way that a professional ball player calls himself an athlete. You wrote, and you say your stories are kind of like your slam dunks, and I think. For those of us writers, I mean, Danielle and I are both writers in addition to readers, obviously. What advice do you give to young or older writers about, uh, I guess, developing that voice and about craft in general? Yeah, it's always tough. I think um, I think that, number one, your intuition will take you farther than your education ever will. You know, can't, nobody can teach you that. There's there's a thing in you. There's a there's a voice. So we always talk about voice and voice could be all kinds of there's so many ways to think about what voice is on the page. But but that. Everybody knows Miles Davis's horn. Everybody knows John Coltrane's horn. Right. Like everybody knows the tone of Aretha Franklin's voice. Like you don't got to see her. Like, you know, the tone of Aretha Franklin's voice. I think whatever that is, is what we got to tap into. And that's not going to come from schooling. That's not like that. That comes from like, if you want to be about somebody told me this years ago, if you want to be a good writer, get to know yourself, get to know yourself, uh, get to know the parts of you that that make you a bit squeamish, that make you squirm, that make you feel a little small, that make you feel a bit big. Right. Get to really know that and figure out how to put that on a page. I think about Coltrane often, how he spent so much of his life trying to find the note for Ohm. Right. How to try to find the perfect note. You know, and there's something to that. I mean, and and then more practically, I think that this is like a ball player. This is about practice. It's about practice. Like, I'm not a person who believes that this is a craft of inspiration. I can't wait to be inspired. I live an inspired life. I ain't waiting for the muse to come down upon me. My life is one of curiosity. It's I, I mean, look around. What a life we live. As wild as a year it's been. Boy, oh boy, is there so much to draw from whenever we finally emotionally come out of the hole, right? Like there's so much that we can think about and talk about and write about and, 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 or not write about. There are things, there are so many things that we can decide to move away from for that matter. And I just think that if we are living our lives openly, like so many writers I hope are doing, I mean, there's, then your imagination isn't, isn't sort of snatched from you like the world has been trying to do since we were like 12 years old. You know, if you live, if you live a curious life, then it will feed your imagination. I want to know all there is to know for no other reason than the fact that they, that those things are there for me to know. And if I can try to know all the things, then I have so many things to pull from when it comes to this writing thing. Uh, and then the last thing is writing is something for me that is um like every day I wake up and I can't believe that this is what I get to do. I feel fortunate. This ain't no burden for me. It don't mean it's always easy because y'all know this is it's brutal at times, right? Like to write is a is a tough, tough, tough thing. 
but it also still feels like such an honor when I think about the lineage of people that we come from, the writers, the traditions that we come from. Like, we just, we lost Toni Morrison recently. And I think about like, man, Toni Morrison was one of us. You know what I mean? And, and as a black woman, as black women, it's like, Toni Morrison, it's like, I couldn't imagine what it must feel like to be a black woman. I could, I, I wish I could. And I know that that comes with a lot, right? But like, when I think about Toni Morrison, it's like, yo, there's a direct line there that we get to tap into, right? And on back. And I wake up and I play around with these 26 letters. I try to find the master code with these 26 letters. And every day, those 26 letters present an infinite amount of possibility. And uh, and that, for me, feels like an extraordinary blessing. No, it definitely is. And I really appreciate you talking so much just about how precious you know, our young children are and the value they have. Because I often would describe it as, like, I don't want to use the word innocence because it's such an overused, cliched word. <laughs> but there is sure. something about childhood and when you're just your most pure, unadulterated before the world comes in and tries to make you something that you're not self, you're your pure self. It's something really mm. magical to capture. And so the fact that you're writing to that purity of self is oh, incredible. I, look, as people always ask me, what would you tell your younger self? Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you is the answer because 12 year old Jason got it right. Because 12 year old Jason really believed that he could change the world. He really believed that he could make it, ch- he could do something. And you get older, it's like, man, look, get a job, kid, right? 30 years old, you better get a job, pay your bills, like all that's over. But when you're 12 years old, you really feel like, yo, I'm getting ready to do, I'm going to turn the world upside down. And every morning I wake up and chase that and chase 12 year old Jason down and hold on for dear life. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you us so much. At it's lit. My pleasure. Shout out to the root. I ain't gonna, I ain't gonna hold y'all though. When I made, when I finally made the root one hundred list. I was so happy, and it <laughs> took everything in me, and it took every, and it took everything in me not to be like, man, y'all pretty, y'all snubbed the kid for like five <laughs> years though. I ain't even gonna hold you. We get it all the time, <laughs> all the time. I'm like, yeah, all my friends on there. I'm like, oh, Darnell Moore on there every year. I'm like, Darnell Moore on there every year. That's my guy. I'm like, come on, son. Y'all snub, y'all snub the kid all the time. Imagine but it's all good. It took me forever to get a job here, and now I can never be on the list. Yo, exactly. <laughs> I know. I was like, it's over. <laughs> it's all good. I appreciate y'all, man. Shout out to the root. Thank y'all very, Thank very much. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and you want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Spread the word. And if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you into these days? You know, Jason got me in the mood to look at YA literature uh, again. And I have been revisiting Ntozaki Shange's Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo, which was one of my favorite books when I was younger (laughs) and has not lost any of its magic. And there's all these like gorgeous kind of like incantations and and kind of... um, I don't know, spiritual recipes um, 
you know, in this discussion of coming of age and black girlhood. And I'm just, I'm newly enchanted with it all over again. What are you reading, Daniel? You're always reading something really fascinating and interesting. Well, I'm reading something that probably a lot of people started reading after the show ended or while the show was on the air, which is Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country. Mm. Um, I was curious to see what's different between the TV show and the book. And the book is almost always more interesting than the TV show because of so much you can cram so much more in a book. Although they seem to have crammed a lot into that TV show. <laughs> you know, that's on my list as well. And I'm I'm excited to hear what you think of it when you're done. Because I'm, I'm almost scared because I'm not really a horror person, but I was really into the show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to digging into it. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit.